so much for all that you give us and all that you've done for us. And even this morning, as we've been brought before your presence through worship, we pray, Lord God, now that you would speak to us in a mighty way as we look at the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah. And Lord, the words that he spoke to Judah, your people, that you would also speak to us in the same way, that we might examine ourselves and see, Lord God, and ask ourselves why we are here today worshiping you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 29. The title of this morning's message is Appeasing Worship. Appeasing Worship. What does appeasing mean? Well, appeasing, if you didn't know, there's two definitions I'm going to give you, and I think they can apply to, well, they do apply to what I'm going to talk about this morning. Appeasing means to pacify or to placate by acceding to their demands, like giving in to somebody's demands, like I'm just going to give in to you or pacify you, make you happy. That's what I'm going to do. It can also mean to relieve or satisfy a demand or a feeling, maybe even your own demand or feeling that you need to appease yourself. And so with that understanding and looking at the title of this morning's message, I ask you this question, why are you here this morning? Why did you come to church? And each and every one of us, I want you to examine yourself and ask yourself that. Why are you here? Do you love the Lord your God and His people and that's why you've come to worship Him? Or sometimes this happens, it might have happened at one point in our lives. Are you here to appease somebody, to pacify that person that maybe always invites you, asks you to come, maybe your spouse, your child, a family member or friend, and even yourself. You're like, well, I need to get to church. It makes me feel better when I come to church. Or maybe even God, you feel like I have to go to church because that's what God wants me to do. And so you're appeasing God. So that's what I mean by appeasing worship. Because in this morning... The words of the prophet Isaiah are also going to speak to you and me this morning about he is going to talk to Israel about their worship of God because as you'll see, they are appeasing God and themselves. And again, I ask each and every one of us to examine our own heart. Who are we appeasing when we're here? Are you appeasing somebody or, or are you here worshiping God because you love him? So let's look at these words that Isaiah gave to Israel, and I pray that, one, you would either find encouragement for those of you that are spiritually alive to the Lord, and for those who may be spiritually dead, that you would be warned or awakened this morning to life. So let's look at the words of the prophet Isaiah, starting in verse 1. He says, Woe, O Ariel! Ariel, the city where David once camped. So let's stop right there from the very beginning. Ariel, you know, is the character from Disney's movie, Little Mermaid, right? That's the first, I said, wow, she's in the Bible. Well, obviously that's not who God's talking to. He's not talking to Ariel. He's talking to, as you see, the city where David once camped. So before we get to that, what does the word Ariel mean? It means the altar hearth, the altar hearth. And if you don't know what that is, I didn't either. I had to look that up. 
It's a place that's like what holds the burning in an altar or maybe in a fireplace, the hearth, you know, where you might bake something in an oven. That's what it's alluding to. So God is calling his people the place of burning, the altar hearth. And he's going to have, it's going to have a double meaning because one, Judah prides itself on being like the center of God's love, his altar. But they also don't realize that they either are the center of God's judgment, which we will see in a few moments. So he's referring to Judah, the southern tribe, and he calls it the city where David once camped. And now this is an allusion to a place where obviously the greatest king of Israel it really shows how Judah has fallen. You once housed the greatest king of Israel, but you're not that anymore. You're not the center of my love. You're not the person like King David after God's own heart, which we will see in a few moments. Again, it is signaling how they have fallen so far from grace and it describes, again, their obliviousness to this fallenness. And this is why the prophet has come to them in this word here. And look at what he says to them at the second part of the verse. He says, add year to year, observe your feast on schedule. Basically, he said, you guys just keep worshiping the way that you are worshiping. Right? Keep going through the motions. Go to sacrifices. Go to temple, observe all the festivals year after year, and God is not pleased with that. You might think, well, isn't God happy that they're obeying the law and sacrificing and going to temple, doing all the things that the law of God prescribes? Well, verse 2 tells you that he's not happy, because look at what he says in verse 2. The prophet Isaiah says, I will distress, or I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning and she will be like an aerial to me. So these are God's words of judgment on his people, right? God's going to bring distress to Ariel. He's going to make them, again, the center of burning, the center of judgment. They're going to be lamenting and mourning. What is God going to do? Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, I will camp against you, and circling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. These are images of war. As you know, through our studies here, he's probably talking about the Assyrian army who's going to come against Israel, or Judah, I'm sorry. He's going to come against the southern nation or the southern tribes in Judah. So God said, I'm going to bring this army against you, obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning, because they're not worshiping God for the right reasons. Right? They're just going through the motions. And so God's going to bring distress on them through the form of the Assyrians. And then later on, because he's going to save them from the Assyrians, he's going to bring Babylon to judge them. And this shows us a few things about God, if you think about it, that God is in control of what is going on here. God is the one that's using a foreign nation to invade his own people. This is how far they have fallen. God has allowed this to happen in their life. And the purpose here, as we've been talking about over and over again through the studies of Isaiah, is for Judah to be humbled and to realize that they need to return to God. God is trying to wake them up through the prophets. And that's why he used such harsh language and such vivid language to wake them up because they do not hear him. 
And verse 4, he shows what's going to happen to them. He says, then you will be brought low. From the earth you will speak, and from dust where you are prostrate, your words will come, and your voice will also be like that of a spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. Total humility is going to be brought on Judah by the Lord God through Assyria and Babylon eventually, so much so that he gives this vivid picture of them in the ground, prostrate, just whispering out for God to help them because they're in such distress and lamenting. And so this is what God has prophesied through Isaiah to happen to Judah. Now in verse 5 through 8, God is going to switch gears in one sense. He says, not only am I going to judge Judah, but I'm also going to judge the people that are coming against you. Look at what he says. Let's just read through this here in verse 5. He says, but the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust. So all those people that are coming against God's people will also be judged. He says, In the multitude of the ruthless ones, like the chaff which blows away, and it will happen instantly and suddenly. From the Lord of hosts you will be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, or God's people, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold, who distress her will be like a dream, a vision of the night, and it will be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating. But when he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied, or as when he is thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking. But when he awakes, behold, he is faint, and his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. So God is saying those nations that come against his people, they're waging war one is not going to last long and it's going to go away and it's going to fade away real quickly it's not going to satisfy them and they're going to be judged because they've come against god's people and as you as you hear this you may be wondering well that seems contradictory god's going to bring these people to judge israel and then he's going to judge them for coming against israel but didn't god bring them are they really responsible for their actions since God is the one who brought them forward? And it may seem like that's not fair. How can God hold someone responsible for the actions that God brought them to do? Let me just say this without getting into a whole big theological argument on this, something we need to just hold lightly and remember that when we are reading Scripture and something seems contradictory in Scripture, I would say the problem is with our understanding and with our interpretation of Scripture. And so we should just not be so dogmatic about certain things. Scripture clearly teaches that God is going to bring a nation against Israel, and then God is going to judge that nation for coming against Israel as well. He will punish them. In other verses, we are told earlier in Isaiah that when Assyria comes, that they are going to go above and beyond what God has called them to do. So maybe in one sense, they weren't totally submitting to God, and they went far beyond what they were supposed to. So God's judging them for that. And so I just wanted to mention that here. And the other thing that I want, to no want you to notice is that even though judgment comes against God's people or discipline come comes against God's people, he does not allow it to go on forever. Over and over again here, he says it's going to be cut off. It's not going to last. It's going to be like they were dreaming and then they wake up and it's gone. I'm reminded of Jesus' words 
what he said to the Apostle Peter. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So sometimes, brothers and sisters, we may suffer. We may be disciplined. But it's not forever. God knows our limits. God knows what he's doing. He may have brought that upon you and upon us. But ultimately, it is for our good and it's not going to prevail against us. And so the same is holds true for God's people here of ancient Judah. Let's go on to verse 9. So he goes back to Judah now. So again, he's going to bring this judgment on them. He's going to judge the people that are coming to judge them. And Isaiah issues a warning in verses 9 through 14. Look at what he says now as he switches back to Judah. He says, Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. So it's like Isaiah is saying to them, hey, you guys, continue in your ways. Be delayed. Don't respond. Be delayed and wait and watch what is going to happen to you if you continue to live this way. If they delay in what will happen, their willingly, their willingly blindness to what God is saying. It's like, I don't want to do what God says. I don't want to see what God has to show me. It's going to lead to permanent blindness. Look at what he says in verse 10. Again, he says, For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. So the warning is this. Hey, if you guys continue in your rejection of God, your disbelief in God, then God is going to cement that in you and he's not going to allow your prophets to hear his word or speak his word. He's not going to allow the seers to understand what God is saying. He's going to put a deep sleep on them, basically cementing them in their rejection of God and in their disbelief of God. And it will result in verse 11 where it says, the entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to the one who is literate, saying, please read this, and he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read, and he will say, I cannot read. Again, just showing that, hey, Israel, if you continue down this road, nobody is going to, be understand, and nobody's going to understand what God's saying to them. Not even the prophets will understand because they continually reject God. And if you continually reject God, then God will ultimately reject you. And so this is the warning that Isaiah is giving to Judah. He's saying, be delayed and wait and watch what happens if you continue to do that. And so let's move on to verse 13 as he again explains in more detail the reason for this judgment. Verse 13, look at verse 13. The Lord says, because this people, and he's talking about Judah here, because they draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they have removed their hearts from me, and their reverence for me consists of traditions learned by rote, therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wonderfully or wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their distress, excuse me, the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. So the reason for this judgment coming upon Israel, or Judah, I'm sorry, 
is their false worship. Did you see that in verse 13 again? Let's look back. He says, because this people draw near to me with their words and honor me with their lip service, but their hearts are far from me. So it's false worship. They're just paying God lip service. They're saying what they know that they're supposed to say. They're doing what they know they're supposed to do because they're Israelites. We go to temple. We offer sacrifices. We celebrate the yearly festivals. But in their heart, they would rather not be there. So you can see why I said at the very beginning, why are you here at church this morning? Do you honor God with your words? or with lip service, but you know deep down in your heart that your heart is not right with God, that it's far from God. And they reverence God. Do you see that? They reverence the Lord. Their reverence consists of tradition. They love the traditions of their worship, but they don't love the God of the worship. And there are many churches like that. They have extreme and extravagant traditions. And they worship those traditions, but they don't truly worship God. And we could even do that in our own worship, in our own church this morning. Again, like we come to church, and I know we do two songs, and then we pray, and then we do two songs, and we pray, and then a sermon. And you might go through the motions, right? And you're not really giving your heart to God. You're paying lip service. And maybe you've even done this as you're worshiping, and you're like, my brain was like somewhere else. It's so easy to do, right? So hard in our world to have our hearts focused on God. But that's just an incidental thing. He's really talking about true belief, not that your mind floated away during the worship or during a sermon. Again, only you and God truly know your heart. We can fool one another. We can fool our family, our spouse. You know, last night I was at the Harvest Crusade, and if you're I'm sure you guys are familiar because it's Southern California, and it's very popular. And Pastor Greg Laurie's son was there, Jonathan, and he was talking about how when he was 16 years old, he fell away from God, the own pastor's son. And he said he was faking it. He was living in two worlds. He was going to church Sunday morning, but he was getting high on Saturday night and falling away from God and trying to live in both worlds and faking everybody out, and only he and God truly knew. And it wasn't until God shaked him up by the loss of his older brother that he came back to the Lord. And so that was his warning. But it just shows you that each and every one of us needs to guard our heart and ask ourselves, do we truly love the Lord our God? Even if you're raised in the church, that can happen. And so we need to guard our hearts and ask ourselves, are we really worshiping God or are we appeasing God? appeasing parents, appeasing brothers and sisters, appeasing our culture, our family? Or do we truly worship the Lord God because we love Him? So God says in verse 14 now, let's point out verse 14, even despite all this, Isaiah not only gives a great warning, he also wants to encourage God's people because even in the midst of a rebellious nation, there is always a remnant Isaiah always alludes to a small group, a remnant, an Israel within Israel who truly loves the Lord. Just like in a church, you know, I don't know who's a true believer and who's not. So I need to give both sides of the word of God and pastors need to do that. Even though we see everybody in church all the time, I don't know each and every one of your hearts. Only you and God know your heart. 
And so even within a church, there may be the true church within the church, right? And especially in big, large, massive churches where there's more people that come in and out and nobody knows who they are. And so there is good news in the midst of this. In verse 14, when he says, Therefore, behold, because of all what's going on, because the leaders of Judah who are no longer hearing from God and misleading the people of God, God says, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. Wondrously marvelous. Well, what does he mean by that? He means that, you know what, he's going to intercede. And when we get to verses 17 and 24, he's going to tell you exactly what he means by that, what he's going to do for the remnant within the nation of Israel. That there's good news in the midst of all this. Look at verse, let's carry on. Drop down a little bit to verse, let's go to verse 15. Because once again, Isaiah is going to reiterate the judgment of the leaders And he's going to warn the people who are spiritually dead in these two verses here. He says, woe to those, so he goes back to warning the spiritually dead, woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord. And those whose deeds are done in dark place, in a dark place. And those who say, who sees us or who knows us. So again, he's talking to the spiritual dead because spiritually dead people think that they can hide from God. And maybe even us who are spiritually awake too sometimes say, God doesn't see us over here when I'm in another city and nobody knows me, another area where nobody's at. But there's a warning saying, whoa, pay attention, be careful. And he goes on with this woe in verse 16, talking about the spiritually dead. He says this, You turn things around. You turn things upside down. Look at what they do. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. So the spiritually dead turn things around so much so that they say, God didn't make me. This is obviously an atheist God didn't make me. We invented God. That's often said. And not only that, they try to tell God, God doesn't know what's going on in culture. Culture has changed. Culture has progressed. God didn't understand things when the scriptures were written. And so society tries to mold and change the word of God to conform to what they believe is true and what is right. We need to be careful of doing that. It says, you've turned things around, the prophet Isaiah is warning those who are spiritually dead. And now let's go on to verse 17, because this is where God does his marvelous work. In verse 17, he says this, so this is the good news, is it not yet just a little while? It's just a little while. Often this is said in scripture, in a little while the Lord's going to do such and such. And in God's, you know, timing, it's a little while to him. For us, it might seem a long time, right? Each of us has our own idea of what a little, a little while is, you know. When you're watching a sporting event, it's like, oh, just three more minutes. There's three minutes left in the game, and how long does it usually take? Like a half hour. Or when your wife says she'll be down in a minute, <laughs> the husbands laugh. That means she'll be down in a minute. That's what it means. In a little while, 
basically God saying, in the future, God's going to do something marvelous for the nation of Israel here. Now, this prophecy, as we look at it, has a multiple fulfillment, and this happens a lot in prophecy, I believe, because there's the immediate context that Judah's going through that this prophecy applies to, that God is going to do something for them as they get attacked by Assyria and Babylon, because God, if you know the story, is going to bring them back to the promised land. And so I think this section is fulfilled in that way. But it also has the future fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ, where he fulfills the prophecy in a sense. And then it has a future fulfillment at the final consummation when the Lord returns for each, for all his people, the final consummation. And so there's always those levels within prophecy. And so with that said, let's, let's read what's going to happen here. He says, before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field and the fertile field will be considered as a forest. So what is he saying here? Lebanon is all, sometimes uh, in reference to the mighty in this world because Lebanon was a mighty forest, the mighty forest of Lebanon, you might hear in prophetic literature. So he's symbolically saying before the, you know, when in a little while when the mighty will be humbled, this is what's going to happen, right? On that day, look at verse 18, on that day the deaf will hear words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see the afflicted also will increase in their gladness in the lord and the needy of mankind will rejoice in the holy one of israel god is going to give understanding to the spiritually deaf and blind is what he's saying god is going to increase the gladness to the spiritually afflicted He's going to make them glad, right? And they're going to make them glad, verse 19, how? In the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. Carrying on in verse 20, how is he going to do this? For the ruthless will come to an end and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. And the evil are those who cause a person to be indicated by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate, and defraud the one in the right with meaningless arguments. Basically what he's talking about here in verses 20 and 21 is that those who pervert justice, those who afflict the innocent and the weak, that's all going to be turned around. And this is why God's people are rejoicing, because God's going to make everything right. And again, it's multi-layered and multi-fulfilled. And he gets Judah. He saves him from Assyria, ultimately. He brings him back out of Babylon. God opens the eyes of the blind at the coming of Jesus Christ, right? Heals people spiritually. But then at the second coming, all those things are fulfilled in totality, where evil will be totally cut off, right? And we will have eternal peace. And as a result of this, he carries on in verse 22 and says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. 
Those who err in mind will know the truth, and those who criticize will accept instruction. And so Isaiah completes his prophecy here, basically saying in verse 22 that Judah's no longer going to be ashamed, right? For God's going to justify and validate their trust in God. And we mentioned this a few weeks ago with Judah as they trust in God and they're waiting for God to validate them. Like say, this is the Lord that we've been waiting for, the one that's going to do all these things for us, the one that we've trusted in and believed in. He says he's going to do it and he finally has come to do it and we're not going to be ashamed anymore of our trust in God. And he's saying this is going to happen with Judah. Not only that, Judah's going to sanctify God's name. And sanctifying means to set apart as holy. So their witness, their walk in God is going to glorify God and bring honor to God. And in verse 23 again, talks about Judah's going to worship the Lord as, the, as they recognize who he is. The more that they understand God and they finally get a grasp of who he is, they worship him. And not only that, as they grasp this truth, not only do they worship him in verse 24, it talks about they're going to have this understanding, they're going to accept his instruction and follow his ways. Because at the time here of the context, they're not doing that, right? They kind of have this understanding of this God that they're supposed to worship, but they're not following his ways. Their heart is far from him. And so there's going to come a time, Isaiah is saying, that they're going to fully grasp God. And in fully grasping God and who he is, not only do you worship him, but you follow his ways because you understand who he is. You don't do it to appease him, but because you love him. You accept his instruction. That's those who are, are spiritually alive. And so as we go to the end here and just talk about application for you and me as we look at this section of Scripture, let's contrast what Isaiah says about those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive. And so I want each and every one of us, as we look at this, I want you to reflect, where are you this morning? Are you spiritually dead or are you spiritually alive? If Isaiah was saying these words to you, which through the Spirit of God he is, where do you shake out? Again, only you and God truly know your heart. Again, all of us this morning could just be paying lip service and doing things out of tradition and really have no love for God. None of us would truly know. Right? So let's look at those who are spiritually dead. Let me just point out a few things. And again, this is a thing to gauge our own hearts. So those who are spiritually dead, Isaiah tells us, they go through the religious motions, right? They're just going through the motion. They give God lip service and their heart is far from Him. They come to church, they worship, they shake hands, say good morning, and then they leave. And they do it all out of Tradition, this is what I do on a Sunday morning, right? I get up, I go to church, I worship, and then I leave. And you're appeased, or maybe your parents are appeased, or maybe your spouse is appeased, or somebody in your life is appeased, and even your own self, you appease yourself. Like, that's what I do. I'm a good person. I, came, I went to church. I got church out of the way. That's what God wants. I appeased God. So those who go through the religious motions, and if that's your heart this morning, then you are spiritually dead. Not only do they go through the religious motions, they worship the tradition of religion. You, maybe you just like all the, like, I love the music and 
you know, maybe you even like to hear the Word of God read and expounded upon. It's like, hey, that was a great teaching, you know, that you, that you did today. That was a great talk, you know. Maybe that's where you're at. You know, I was really motivated by the speech this morning. You know, I've heard those words before. And you just, it's just the tradition. I love it. I love to hear God's Word read. I love when you read it in King James English. I don't do it here, but maybe in a church that you've attended. It sounds really great. And go through all the pomp and circumstance and the ceremony. And maybe that's what you love. If that's it, then you're spiritually dead if you don't truly have a heart for God. Those who are spiritually dead, we learned this morning, they also hide their true intentions. Right? Nobody sees it. Even God, you think you're hiding it from God. Even by being here this morning, you think God doesn't know your true intentions on why you are here? Well, He does. They also think they can hide their sins from God. God doesn't see what I'm doing. The spiritually dead believe that. They also believe, as I mentioned, that maybe God's an invention of man. This is just something that people do to help themselves feel better, to cope with the rough, the rough times and the hard times, something they can hope on even though he's not really real. And whatever helps you get through it, then you go for it. Each and everybody has their own God and their own thing that helps them get through life. And so that, if that's you this morning, then, then you need to check your heart and see, am I spiritually alive or spiritually dead? The spiritually dead, and this is the judgment side, well, if that's where you are, as I mentioned earlier, God's going to allow you to live and cement yourself in that unbelief. That's the scary thing. And that's the warning to you this morning. If that's where you are, you need to really need to to check your heart, in a sense. It's like, if that's where I'm at, I haven't really given my heart to God. I'm just paying lip service. You, know, you could even be serving in the church and be paying lip service. I'm sure we have a number of pastors and even worship leaders and children's ministry workers, well, not at this church, though, those other churches, right, that are just doing lip service. Like, I get up and I play the guitar and I worship or I, I sing and I play the keyboards or the drum. That's my part of appeasing God that accounts for nothing towards your salvation. And if that's what you believe, please check your heart and repent because God is going to one day say, that's where you are and that's where you will stay. And the ultimately will lead to eternal separation from God because of your unbelief. God will give you what you want. If you don't want God, you will have an eternity away from God. And so that's the end result of those who are spiritually dead. Now let's contrast that on a positive note with those who are spiritually alive because this is what we want. The spiritually alive, in contrast, they have given their heart to God. They are here this morning because they love God. They want to hear from God. They want to worship God. They want to pray with their brothers and sisters. They want to give to the Lord God because they love Him, not to appease Him in any way, but because they love Him. They love God. They love the Word of God. They love to worship God. All those things. And they practice all these things again because they love God, not because they need to appease Him. They don't give or worship or listen to a sermon because it makes God happy or makes them happy, or their spouse happy, or their parents, or whoever happy, their family. This is what they enjoy doing. I pray that you, this morning, that you enjoy coming to church because you love God. You want to hear the Word of God expounded upon. You want to worship God 
pray to God with the church. The spiritually alive also, they repent. When they sin, they don't try to hide it. They say, God, I've sinned again. I did the thing I said I wasn't going to do again, right? We just, we confess it. We recognize I, I stumble and fall and bumble, and I'm going to do this my entire life, but every time I do it, I'm going to repent of it, and I'm going to try not to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't try to hide their sin. They repent of it. And the spiritually alive, they are given understanding in the ways of God because of that. They start to understand who God is. They start to get an inkling because they're spiritually alive. God speaks to them. And I really like this one, and this is probably one of the hardest ones to explain, or I've never found a good way to explain it, is they will have an inner peace in abundance. Go back to verse 19 for a second, because this is where I get it. It says, the afflicted, right, those who suffer, also will increase in their gladness in the Lord. Not because they get out of it, not because they're given something, it's just this inner peace that believers have in the Lord. And maybe you can't always explain it, and you don't always understand it, because I don't. As I said, maybe I just don't know how to communicate it properly. But it's just this inner like peace that, you know what? God's in control. God's promised to work all things out. And I just trust in that, and I believe that. And because of that, I have this inner peace that gets me through all the hard things in life. And that's worth more than anything. At the end of the day, I know no matter what happens, I'm going to be with the Lord. And I think that's what he's talking about in verse 19. It's an increase of the gladness in the Lord. It's something that non-believers don't have. They have gladness in, in happenings, the good things that are happening to them. When things are good, they're happy. When things are bad, maybe they're not. I mean, that can happen to believers as well, but we should have this inner peace knowing that, okay, bad things are happening, but God's doing it for a reason. He's working out His plan in my life. As Mike prayed earlier, we are promised trials and tribulations. We're not above being afflicted and suffering in this world. Sometimes we fall or suffer because of leadership, Right? This whole thing in the nation of Israel, God is condemning the leaders and everybody that's under those leaders are suffering as well, which is why you should pray for your leaders, not only in our country, but also in the church, like the pastor, like, let's just say it, like me. I don't, I don't want you to suffer because of my life, and I'm sure you guys don't want to suffer because of my life, but that's a stern warning that if, hey, if your leader is not listening to the word of God, just like, then... God can blind that leader and then allow him to just speak whatever and not teach God's word properly. And the whole church suffers because of that, because you're getting bad doctrine, or false doctrine. And so, I don't know how I got there, but inner peace. <laughs> and lastly, and this is probably why I have inner peace, is because one day I'm going to live in eternal peace. Right? We're promised at the second coming of Christ that, behold, all things are brand new. No more suffering, pain, crying, for the old things have passed. All of you who suffer infirmities and, and you know, disabilities, me too, right? Those things are going to be restored. We're going to have full vision, full hearing. 
anything. We can, you know, total restoration in the Lord. And the most important thing is we're going to be with the Lord God himself. And so that's what awaits those who are spiritually alive. And so this morning, again, I pray that as you hear that, that would encourage those of you who maybe are spiritually dead to wake up. Come to the Lord, because this is why the Lord just sends the prophets and his word to speak to our hearts. And for those of us that are spiritually alive, let us rejoice in what we have in our Lord God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, how it continues to speak to us as you spoke to ancient Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And I pray this morning, Lord, that as you speak to each and every one of us, that we would truly examine ourselves this morning. Are we spiritually dead? And if we are, I pray that you would wake us up and that we would hear you and that we would repent and come to you or return to you before it is too late. And for those of us, Lord, who are spiritually alive, may we continue to walk with you. May we continue to worship you. May we continue to live for you and glorify you with all that we have. We thank you for the encouragement this morning. We thank you that one day this peace that we have will be fully consummated and you will fully cut off all evil from the earth. You will cut off all injustice as well. And we look forward to that day. And until that day comes, may we walk closely and humbly with you, Lord. And we pray this in your name. Amen.